So uh, much like everyone who is a Christian, we're always being taken to school. So last week I, I just brought uh, the sermon to a close. Uh, it may not have seemed that way, but I was only halfway through what I had actually prepared. And uh, given the fact that it was an hour uh, into it, I figured maybe I'd just save the rest for this week. <laughs> yeah, an hour. Sorry about that. Okay, so this sermon actually just sort of oddly picks up, picks up just sort of in the middle of the action. And I know that we have done some review, but we're actually coming to the to close of a section here. What what follow, Jesus says some of the most alarming things that he has said throughout the entire gospel here, and then what he does is he goes and he heals another blind person. And and what we're supposed to understand between the the blind man he healed. Right, that that saw people, but they look like trees, and and the blind man that he's going to heal next week in Jericho. This is one section in Mark between those two healings, and because he heals blind people and he heals blind people, the through line is that Jesus is healing blindness. Right, this is obvious to us. The disciples couldn't be right; they can see, but they can't see. If you know what I'm saying, they see, but they the people look like trees. They don't get it. So after, you know, Jesus has gone up on the mountain, we've got to see him transfigured. He comes down, he heals people of demons. He's going around, he's healing, he's leading, he's terrifying, he's filling his followers with fear, with his, with his fierceness and his zeal. And, and all along, what he's trying to teach them about, what he's trying to show them between these two stories of, of blind healings is what servant lordship looks like. See, Israel for going all the way back to the beginning, well, all the way back to Adam in the garden, man himself has an authority problem. For Jesus, Israel has an authority problem. The disciples have an authority problem. The only person who doesn't have an authority problem is Jesus. He knows who his authority is, and he knows how to wield authority. Right? So for all the rest of us, we either... (laughs) don't want to submit to the authorities that are rightfully above us, and or, usually both, we don't know how to wield the authority that God has given us. And Jesus is about to go to heaven. right? He's about to go through his whole passion. He's about to stand there at the end of Matthew and say the phrase that we all know so well, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me, and therefore I am sending you. Now, if he's going to do that, who is he going to put that kind of authority, whose hands is he going to put that authority in? At this point, I'm a little nervous. I'll be honest. Right? I'm as nervous as my kid should be. Get that? Catch that? Whereas all as, right, we should be very nervous about who God is putting the authority in the hands of. So, what this sermon today, what, right? We go last week, John and James want authority. They go to Jesus and they demand it of him. Put us in charge. Right? And doesn't that sound like you? <laughs> put me in charge. If you were just to put me in charge, I would fix all of this stuff and I would, I would do better than all those stupid people. My stupid boss and my stupid husband and, and my stupid parents, my stupid president. Right? I can tweet way smarter stuff than that guy tweets. <laughs> yeah, one would hope, right? Could you imagine? I had a Twitter account where that many people read me. I would, I just, no, please. Okay, I, no. 
Don't let it happen. And, and what we need to come, to, <laughs> we need to come to the, the to, to the exercise of authority, and we need to stop for a moment, and we need to, to to cry out. We need to look at ourselves in the mirror and say, "Good God, what did you do by putting me in charge of these people?" I remember all I wanted was to, my wife. I just wanted to marry her. I asked her to marry me three weeks after meeting her. It took three years. That's another story. Okay? But all I wanted was to marry her. And I remember it was like three weeks after we were married, I sat on the bed and I thought, what did you do, God? <laughs> what did you do to this poor woman? <clears throat> and and, and this, is, this is the problem that we all have. Right? I, I tend to speak a lot to the men. But today, I'm, everyone in this room has authority. Or, if you're a small child, you will. Right? Most of my kids have authority because I, at some point, put them in charge of other kids. So everybody in this room has authority. And so this isn't just for the men. This is for everyone. We all have an authority problem. Jesus knows it all too well. And that's what he's going to talk to us about today. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your son who did not think um, divinity was something to be grasped something to be clutched onto, something to be held in, in a selfish way. He came into this world. He set his face like flint. He came to spend that authority, to spend that strength to save us, to save the world, to serve others. And we pray, Lord God, that as we, as we look and behold your son today, that we would see him anew, and that by seeing him anew, that our, our, our hearts would be enlivened, that our faith would be renewed, and that we would go and do likewise. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. <coughs> we are apt to expect far more present enjoyment from our religion than the gospel ever promises. <laughs> Right? We, we expect far more delight and far more earthly pleasure and far more enjoyment in, in, in a worldly and self-centered manner than the gospel ever promises. Right? God has a wonderful plan for my, my life, and we hear that, and we know exactly what a wonderful plan means. And so we go about <laughs> trying to bring about that kingdom, that glorious kingdom that Jesus is trying to build in which I am the center of the universe we start to think because God has done so much for us that the story is about us. Uh, and this is, this is what happens in our homes, right? So much is done for the kids that the kids start to think that the whole thing is about them. And when you stop and, you're like, and you try to explain it, like, but Dad, didn't you buy a nicer car because you had so many more kids? I mean, didn't you, all this curriculum? I mean, look at your house. You designed it for kids. Dad, aren't we the point? Right, and and they have a it's it's a hard question to answer. Well, yeah, um, kind of. I guess you are <laughs> you are the point. And then you have to start figuring this out as a parent. Like, how do I talk to them about this? But we do exact. We're the, we're the little kids who do the same thing. Man, God, <laughs> He really did put me at the center of the unit. Look at everything He's done for me. Everything He does for me now, I I am like the best. <laughs> And this whole story is about me. <clears throat> the result of this is that the wisdom that we attain comes dearly. It comes at a high cost. By bitter experience, after many disappointments and not a few falls, we do grow up in wisdom. 
but it's a hard-fought wisdom. Let us not forget that there is a cross to be borne by every Christian, every Christian. Christ bore his cross so that we could bear ours. Through much tribulation, we must enter the kingdom of God. It says in Acts chapter 14, verse 22. Through much tribulation, we, we, not some, not a chosen few, we must enter the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Let us be weary of a boastful spirit. That's what we learned last week, right? James and John want to be there in, G- in Jesus' glory, at his right hand and his left, and we found out that that's, those positions were reserved for the two thieves on either side of Jesus at the cross. John and James were not worthy. They weren't worthy of it. And so we have to be careful about a boastful spirit. I understand that many of you, many people have made this joke. It was much more difficult to pray this week after my sermon last week. That's not exactly what I meant. <laughs> In fact, I got some books about prayer, very small ones that are, it's, it's what Mark Driscoll used to call a book you'd actually read because it's like 30 pages. I got them and they're back there on the table and I suggest you look at them. One of them is called Praying the Bible. The other one's called enjoying your prayer life because it seems like after last week everyone needs a little bit of that. (laughs) But the problem with our prayers isn't that we pray, it's the boastful nature in which we do it. It's the boastful nature in which we do it. Uh, You know, we're like little kids who come up and they, like, the kids love to give suggestions. How about ice cream for dinner? Dad, will you give me anything I want? It's my birthday. Oof, okay. All right, can I have a tank? I mean, and, and, and this sounds funny when it's little kids, but if you ever stop and listen to yourself praying, it does actually sound like that. Now, that, now again, we're not going to go back and beat a dead horse, but this is the boastful spirit that we have to watch out for in our own hearts. And, and so what James and John have, what all of the disciples were going to see, what they constantly need is to have their theology of glory, their theology of a cross, their theology of a crown, their theology of a leadership come up hard and fast against Jesus' theology of a cross and a crown and authority. Because after John and James put their foot in their mouth, after they make this outrageous demand of Jesus, he tries to get to humble them a little bit, and they say, oh, of course we can be baptized with your baptism and drink your cup. Of course we can. Right? What does Peter do? The big brother. Does he take James and John aside and say, listen, I've known you my whole life, because he did. Does he sit him down and say, listen, I understand why you asked that question. I love you guys. You need to really think about, right? you got to stop, slow down, right? No. Does he take them through Proverbs? No, this, this is the reaction of the other disciples. You're waiting always for these guys to step up and lead well. And, but this is their reaction. In Mark chapter 10, verse 41 is where we're starting. When the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> indignant. They're not, in, right? And they're not, why are they indignant? They don't go on and start defending Jesus. They don't go on there and start explaining to them how they're selfish. Why are they indignant? This word indignant was recently used by Jesus. He was indignant towards his disciples because they wanted to keep the little kids away from him. Because the thing that riles us up, the thing that we're indignant about, tends to show what kind of character we have. Jesus didn't like the fact they were trying to keep the kids away from him. That's righteous and noble. The ten disciples are indignant because James and John would out- ask such an outrageous question. Now, why, though? Why, would they, why are they indignant about it? 
Not for the same reasons I would, right? We are reading the story. They're indignant because James and John beat him to the punch. Peter's like, man, I was going to ask that. <laughs> There's Matthew in the back going, they beat me. I was, I was just going to ask that question. I was just getting up the courage, right? Everybody else seems to be getting shade thrown at them. They're all getting yelled at. I, Matthew hasn't said anything in a while. He thinks, hey, it's probably, it's my turn to talk. And he goes over there, and there's James and John already asking the question. This is why. That's the only reason they're indignant. They are not indignant for any reason that they ought to be. They're indignant because what they want is the position that James and John are seeking. Jesus justly rebukes both the two and the ten, right? We see he now is going to take everybody aside and he says, okay, let's sit down in the grass, guys, and let's have another conversation about what authority looks like, about what service looks like. You see here that they are not getting along. The disciples are not getting along. Jesus and them are not getting along. Because they are, they, he is doing things. He is saying things. And the way that he is saying things and the way that he is doing things is, is just throwing everybody into a, a total conniption here. They don't know what he's doing. They think they know, oh, okay, his kingdom's coming in glory, so we better start asking for positions. We don't want to get left behind. David had his three great men at his right-hand side. Remember, that could kill 8,000. We want to be in that group. This is why Peter starts wearing a sword. Peter's not a soldier. Peter's a fisherman. When people come to arrest Jesus, why does he have a sword? Who is he trying to be? Who from the Old Testament does he think he is? is, These guys are just befuddled right now. So Jesus takes every... He said, okay, listen. I've already talked to James and John. Now what I need to do is talk to everybody. Everybody sit down. This happens. I have six kids. You know, you're talking to this one, you're talking to that one, and finally the chaos is so much, you just, okay, get everybody in the room. Bring everyone in here. I can't even think right now you guys are so loud. Bring everyone in here and be quiet because I can't even yell at one of you because you can't even hear me. And that's kind of what's going on here. He's like, just get all the kids in the living room and sit down. It's time for a family meeting. Family meeting. Jesus is having family meetings. That's how bad the disciples are. Mark chapter 10, verse 42 And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Now, we could run into all kinds of problems here. Why? I thought slavery was like the most wicked thing that you could possibly ever do. Right? There, there, there's a lot to be said about this. I really, I, I hope I'm offending some of you. Right? The Bible does not say slavery is the worst evil. In fact, there are some places it doesn't say it's evil at all. Why is Jesus using something that would be as wicked as all get out as an example of what his people should be doing if it was evil? That doesn't make any sense. Now, if you go to the Old Testament... There are two kinds of slavery. One of them is where you go into another camp and you, and you think, you know, I, I have a large farm and what I need are people to work it. And that tribe looks pretty weak. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go over there and I'm going to steal all those people and I'm going to bring them back here and chain them up and I'm going to make them work for me. That's called chattel slavery, man-stealing slavery. And anybody who does that ought to be put to death. That's what the Bible says. There are other forms of slavery, though, such as, you know, I have a lot of, I have a lot of kids I, I can't afford to feed them all. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell myself to Steve, 
And I'm going to go and work for him and live in his house, and he's going to take care of me because I can't afford to take care of myself. And then I'm his slave. And then the Old Testament has all kinds of rules about how that relationship ought to exist. And after uh, the year of Jubilee, I should be released if I want to be. But not all slaves want to be. So there's actually in the law, it states what you do with a slave who doesn't want to be set free. Now, this seems like I'm going way off on the skinny branches. But how, like, if you go out in the, in, the, in the public square at this point and we start talking about how slavery is a biblical idea, what do you think people are going to say and do? I, you all look really uncomfortable right now. That's exactly my point. Right? You start talking this way, this is what gets you blacklisted. Right? Nobody cares really what we're saying in this room. If people did care... I would have like mynorthwest.com out in front of the church on Monday, and they would, there would be people with signs. We have an authority problem, and part of it is the fact that he uses this word slave, and generally what they, right, ESV at least used the word slave here because I think usually they translate the word as bondservant, which is a very confusing word, which most people have no idea what it means. But the word slave they actually use here because they probably think no no one's going to really notice what's being done. But Jesus is talking about people being slaves, He's talking about leaders being slaves. Well, that must mean there's something about slavery that there's something about it that he's using as an example. Right? But if I go on CNN, if I go on MSNBC, right, we're tearing down statues of American heroes because they may or may not have owned slaves 180 years ago. Right? We're scrubbing American history and we got to get rid of it. And, and I remember stating, you go after these Right? You go after these statues, and the next thing you're going to be doing is you, you can't have an American flag because the American flag flew over slavery for a lot longer than the Confederate flag. And if you really think about history, the United States flag is a symbol of a whole lot of tyranny. And if we start to think this way, if we start to accept these premises, what we're going to be doing is pretty soon you're not going to be allowed to talk about George Washington. Right? Should we? He owns some slaves. I'm sorry. He owned slaves. <laughs> Ulysses S. Grant, right, the great general who won the Civil War, didn't free his slaves until the 1870s. Because he was from Illinois, where it was still legal. Because if you notice the proclamation that Abraham Lincoln said, he freed all the slaves in the South. And he did that on purpose because all of his friends in the North who had slaves didn't want him to free the slaves everywhere. Anyway, see, look, I digress. <laughs> This is an issue that I may have thought about for a little while. But what I want to do is this, this is the authority problem that we have. It is very, very difficult for any of us to use the words and use the ideas and think biblically because what we come up hard and fast again is modern culture. Right? And, and this is a low, this is low-lying fruit. Why this would be at all controversial is to just show how badly Christians understand their Bibles. Anybody who goes to Africa and takes a person against their will and brings them back here and sells them ought to be shot. Right? Just to make my bona fides clear. But what do we have now, right? I'm not, right? When I was working for the courthouse or other, right? Say you have somebody who went to college and they owe $80,000. Right? Then they want to have the same affluence their parents had, so they go out and they get a bank loan and they buy a house. Then they buy two cars, right? Because wifey's also got to go to work. So that before you know it, you're $500,000 in debt and you work for your business. If you don't go to work, they're going to take everything that you own and you're telling me that that person is not a slave. What's slavery then? 
Right? What does that guy own? He doesn't own anything. <laughs> right? He works for Wells Fargo. He's an employee of Wells Fargo. Now, no self-respecting Jew is going to be called a slave and stand for it. They're not, right? We run into this later on when Jesus is talking to the Pharisees and he says <coughs> that you're the, you're the children of Satan and you're slaves, right? And if you, the, the Son of God, who he makes free, are free indeed. And they get all worked up. Who are you calling slaves? What are you talking about free? We're free. We were born free. They're not, though, are they? They're not. Have you met a Pharisee yet in this gospel that was a free man? And, and, and what Jesus is doing here is the same thing that I want to do with all of you. He's using words that makes, that makes the disciples purposely uncomfortable because they think far too much of themselves. You want to be a leader in Israel? You're going to be its slave then. You're going to be the slaves of Israel. Because what you think is leadership and what you think is authority and what you, th- what you think is going on with people with power and authority is not what is going on in God's kingdom. Because who is the highest authority even before the incarnation? Who had the highest authority in heaven? Jesus. And what did he do with it? Now, if you give any other human being who's ever lived that much authority, what are they going to do with it? These guys want to sit at his right hand and his left hand in glory, and they want to be kings. They want crowns. They want rods of iron that we can beat people with. And Jesus says, no, no, no. If you want authority, you're going to be a slave. A slave? <laughs> then you go back to Leviticus and you're reading about slaves. You're like, no, I think he's wrong. I don't, I don't think Jesus is. Something's wrong with Jesus. He ate some bad fish. Something is wrong with Jesus. Someone has gotten to him. Something has happened to him. Why is he talking this way? Now, a couple of other interesting points here. How do people usually use the authority that they are given? Well, you know, this is a problem perennially with husbands, right? Because we think the little woman is there because she's going to make us sandwiches and bring us slippers. I remember when we got married, I, I had the worst ideas about marriage. One of them was I would, make, uh, I would make these declarative statements that would then become law in the household. And I won't even cover some of them because they were proclamations that I numbered for a while. And everybody thought it was kind of funny until they realized I wasn't joking. And then some guys had to sit down and have a conversation with me about, like, you can't just, that's not how authority works. You can't just declare things and expect everyone to do what you say. I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Haven't you read the Ten Commandments? This is exactly what God does. Now, we like to throw uh, Congress under the bus. Let's throw Congress under the bus here, and let's all get together on this one, because, right, we all feel, we ought to feel together on this. This is, I read this study. Here you go. For the first time in history, the majority of Americans elected, America's elected officials in Washington, D.C. are millionaires. <laughs> How did they become millionaires? At the same time, 50% of Americans cannot afford to spend $5,000 in an emergency. The major, all of the congressmen and the senators are millionaires, and the average American family can't spend five, 50% of them can't spend $5,000 in an emergency because they don't have it. The average American citizen saw his or her household net worth decrease between 2004 and 2012 by an annual rate of negative 
at the same exact time, right now think back to 2004 to 2012 and, and the difficulties in the financial markets we had. Right? My dad with his retirement fund, he was retiring at a terrible time because he took a bath and <laughs> all the money that he lost. This is what Congress experienced a medium annual increase of 1.5%. Congress saw a total increase of $317 million in its assets amongst all the people that they were surveying. Right? People don't go into <laughs> people don't go to Congress to serve. They go to Congress, right, to make money. Uh, I, I remember reading this quote by a congressman in the 1950s. He was talking to a, a first-year congressman, what they call him freshman. He'd been there for 20 years, and he said, "Can you smell the marble yet?" And that first-year freshman had no idea what he meant. 20 years later, he said the same thing to a freshman congressman because over you you, you get into the halls of power. Right? And we all know marble doesn't actually smell like anything, but you, 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 start to get, right? you start to get tantalized by all the power, all the authority, all the money. Because you've got to be raising money all the time. Right? And, if, and if you want to put a business, right? you want to help out the people in your district by getting jobs, and somebody wants to put a factory there to make tanks, who, who do you think they're going to pay to get access? Right? This is how it works. This is how authority in the United States works. And this is at the highest levels and the lowest levels. Uh, there are stories about people who run, like, the water department in Snohomish County making a lot of... How did they make all that money? How did they make money? You're running a water department. I mean, you have a pay... It doesn't equal to what you've actually... The salary that you've been receiving. It's like, where is that money coming from? The other thing here is that Jesus brings in the Gentile rulers as an example to them because who are the disciples imitating? How do the disciples feel about the Gentile rulers over them? Right? All they want is Jesus to strap on the golden armor, get on a chariot, and start mowing down the Roman legions and the Roman leaders who are there subjugating everybody. And yet, and yet, who is it that they want to lead just like? They want to lead just like the Gentile leaders that they hate. I'm going to use myself as an example here, right? I, I will come home back in the day when I worked at the court, and I would start railing against, you know, the feminist judges I got to work for and all the lying and thieving, right? And then I would discipline my kid without even telling them what they was, I was disciplining them for. And you're like, wow, look at that. I just, I, I came home, and I complained about the leaders, and then I did what they do. And, and that is what Jesus is doing here. Right? How many husbands and fathers come home and just, we'll throw the president under the bus and we'll throw our boss under the bus and we'll throw everybody under the bus and then we will lead just like them. And, and, and this is what people do. This is what they're doing. This is what Jesus is trying to correct. And, and the irony is they hate the leaders they have and they want to lead just like them. And ha so how many of you hate the leaders that you have? Can't stand the way that they lead. I'm talking at work, I'm talking in civics, I'm talking at church. You can't stand the, why did they make that decision? What are they doing over here? What's wrong with these people? And then you turn around and you lead very poorly in your own home. Or you go to work and you take it out on your employees because they're a bunch of idiots. What we need is servant lordship. Servant lordship. 
Now, those are two words you don't usually hear together, right? Has anyone ever heard those two words put together, servant lordship? What else do you call what Jesus did? If you go to Philippians chapter 2, verses that we've read over and over and over again, right? Have this mind among yourselves. Jesus, who is in heaven, lowered himself, humbled himself, humiliated himself to come and to serve everybody who he needed to die for. And because he did that, the Lord God, right, gave him the name above every name and the lordship of the heavens and the earth. So there you have servant lordship. And this is the kind of authority that God wants you to exercise in the various realms in which you exist. And he's showing them. He's not just telling them. You go to Mark chapter 10, verse 32, and it says this. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. His face was set toward Jerusalem. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid, because he was so set and determined to do the thing that God had given him to do. He wasn't behind them, right, slowly walking, knowing that, right, the sooner I get there, the sooner I'm going to die. So I'm going to just sort of linger back here at the back. No, he's at the front. And he set his face like flint towards the task that God has given him. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you might, by his poverty, become rich. He has all this wealth. He has all this authority. He has all this masculinity. He has all of this chutzpah. And what is he going to use it on? Now, who leads like that? Right? That's what populists tell us they're going to do. We're for the people. We're for the workers. We're for the downcast. We're for the poor. Right? The, the war on poverty. How did that work? What was that all about? Well, it wasn't really a war on poverty. I don't know if you guys didn't know that. But here is Jesus, and he has all authority in heaven and earth already. And what did he do with it? How did he spend it? What does it look like? Did he come for himself? Or did he come to spend all of his strength, all of his resources, all of his knowledge, all of his wisdom? Did he come to spend it all on people who didn't want him? The people who he was responsible for, who he needed to provide for them, not what they wanted, but what they needed. All along here, he's having conflicts with them because he's not lining up with what they want. He's giving them what they need. That's leadership, right? You get lip. People are like, what are you doing doing this decision, making that decision? And you understand this is what they need, not what they want. And have you ever had to make a difficult decision for people who didn't want you to make that decision? And you had to sit there and just tell them with a straight face, that this is what we're going to do. And I know you don't like it, but just trust me. you got to have a lot of money in the bank to write that check. I have attempted to write that check in my own family. You know what I realized? I'm writing like a $50 million check, and i got 50 bucks in the bank. Right? Jesus comes, and he shows us. He shows us. He puts so much money in our bank, we can never pay him back with the love and the grace and the kindness that he's given us. So the checks that he's able to write on that authority. So in, in your own home, right, this is how it works. You've got, to, you've got to love and you have to serve and you have to be using your authority to build people up, to do, provide for them what they need. And, and, and if you have enough money in the bank, you can write the checks, even the ones that they don't want you to write. 
And, and this goes from canceling the online TV show program that they, that they all love, but you know is terrible for them. Right? We make those kinds of decisions. The kids don't really understand what's wrong with this, but I'm going to get rid of it. And they're unhappy, but whatever. I'm going to do it because it's good for them. But husbands may know a little bit more about the real terror of this. When you're looking across at the wife and you're like, listen, I know that we've talked about this. I know how you feel, but this is what we're going to do anyway. And, you, and, you, and at that point, you've got to just say, trust me. <laughs> right? And how does, that, right? how does that work usually? <clears throat> we have an authority problem. We have an authority problem because we have an, a vertical one and we have a horizontal one. We have a problem with the authorities that God has put above us. And, and, and we also have a, a problem with the authority that we have that we exercise over others. Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist, and, and those that exist have been instituted by God. <coughs> In counseling, or you know, for premarriage counseling, this is always one that I love. Okay, um, young man, I'm glad you're excited. Calm down. She has to respect you when you're not respectable. Now, do you want her to do that? Yeah, eager, super eager. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I am pretty respectable, but okay, go ahead. I don't really understand what you're saying. Okay, well, let me bring this. Okay, at some point, she's going to find out you're, there's nothing respectable about you. Okay, and at that point, God tells her to keep respecting you. And if you want her to be prepared for that day, here's what you do. You have authorities over you like Donald Trump. There's nothing respectable about him. But what you do is you talk about him because he's the president of the United States with a certain amount of honor and respect that, that is not, he has not earned himself. It's because God has given him this authority. And this is a trick that husbands play on themselves all the time. I have no respect for that person because he's not respectable. And then they turn to their wife and they're like, what's wrong with you? Right? I know that I'm annoying. I know that I just lied. I know that I won't pick up my laundry and put it in the basket that you want me to. But, you know, the Word of God says right here, love the unlovely. <laughs> and, and I'm telling you, I have laid this trap for myself I don't know how many times. Respect the authorities above you who aren't respectable? I don't know what's so hard about that wife. And then you go and you don't respect anybody that God put over you. This is the authority problem that we have. Now, if, one way to identify this kind of thing in your own life is to exchange biblical words for common use words. You don't have a boss, you have a master. That's what the Bible says. Nowhere in the Bible will you find words like boss or leader. You have a master, though. And as soon as I say to a, a, you know, a man in his 40s or 50s, you know, are, are you honoring your master? They, right? Everybody suddenly becomes a libertarian. Everybody's like, what? This is America, man. What are you talking about? No king but Jesus. You're like, if I said, how are you doing with your boss? They would, right? Then they would just tell me all the things wrong with their boss. But if I asked them about their master, <laughs> everybody gets uncomfortable. But I worked at the courthouse. I had a master. She was this weird middle-aged Russian woman. And I liked to call her master. And everybody thought this was really weird, but I was like, well, okay, hold on. Can you, right, all the court people I work with, can you go to the bathroom right now? 
Like, oh, no, no, I have a break at, at 10. Oh, you wanted your break at 9.45, right? Yeah. Well, why do you take your break at 10.15 then? Well, because she told me to. Oh, so she's your master then. Why? I don't understand why it's hard. You can't go to the bathroom unless she tells you you can. You go to lunch when she tells you you can. You get paid what, what she says. You can't work longer than what she says. You can't do anything that she doesn't say. She says jump, we say how high. I call that a master. I, I understand her funny accent and her weird clothes. I get you. There's lots there. That's hard to love. But she's the master and we serve her. And when you start to talk this way, especially with unbelievers, you are a kook fast. But what I have found is you're just as easily a kook with Christians. This is easily. Let me read a verse for you. And this, <laughs> this is a long storied history in the Klaus family. First Peter chapter three, verse five and six. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. <laughs> okay, pre-marriage counseling. Here we go. All right, young lady. This is your Lord. You should think of him as your Lord. You should call him Lord. I'm sorry, you want me to what? Yeah, I want you, I want you to call him Lord because he's your Lord. Now, my wife, who's a very smart woman, I mean, she said, listen, you know, maybe some of their, the problem they have is that the only time you ever, who uses that word? Nobody uses that word unless we're talking about Jesus, right? I mean, or, or Downton Abbey. We're watching Downton Abbey, and everybody calls the father in that show Lord, and everyone's fine with it because he is, right? He's the duke or something. But to sit there and to, right, this sweet 23-year-old lady who just can't wait to get married, and you're like, this is your Lord. If we look at the Book of Common Prayer marriage ceremony, it says, it says in there, with this body I thee worship. Now, that, those are all biblical words. That is as, about as biblical phrase as you could use. Why are we all so uncomfortable? Because we don't know what the word worship means. We don't know what a Lord is. We don't raise this young man to act like one. Now, again, I remember way back, it was like 2008, I sat down with my wife and I said, see, you're supposed to call me Lord. So I'd like you to start using Lord. How do you think that went? How do you think Dean reacted when he heard I'd done that? He's like, whoa, whoa tell me again, what'd you do? <laughs> Next time he saw Anne, he's like, okay, did he really do it? Did he really sit you down and tell you to call him that? He's like, okay, that's not how it works. Any man who sits you down, ladies, and tells you to call him Lord, please come and see me right away. Or just have him come. I don't need to see you at all. Now, that aside, the Word of God says that godly women think about and refer to their husband as their Lord. Now, how do you think that would go on Twitter? Right? How do you think that would go if I started blogging that kind of thing? What if I wrote a book called Call Him Lord, Honey? <laughs> we have an authority problem, don't we? I, I mean, ladies, seriously, I'm, I'm asking you. Is that You're like, oh, yeah, you know what I'm going to do today at, during lunch? It's call him, I'm just going to call him Lord now. And why not, though? Why not? Right? Do we have an authority problem? The Word of God says it. And if you study the Word of God, you find out exactly why, right? 
did Sarah have a reason always to call him Lord? How about that little thing where, you know, they weren't producing a baby and she brings him, him the slave woman and he's like, well, you know, for the family, I'll take this slave woman into my bed. Take one for the team. Right? Did, you, did it seem like she wanted to call him Lord a lot after that? No, but it, she did. Why? Because it, it doesn't matter how he's acting. It, 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 what matters is the authority that God has given him. Now, Abigail is a character in, in, in the Old Testament that I love because she has a husband that is no Lord. And he almost gets everybody slaughtered because he's very insulting to King David. And she comes rushing out of the house after she's heard what stupid thing her husband has said. And she like falls down before David because he's the king. It's like kissing his feet and giving him gifts and worshiping him almost because he is the anointed of the Lord. And there are politics, but she doesn't care about anything but who he is, his authority that God has given him. And what you see is this is, she never actually says anything bad about her husband, even though I'm like, please, would you just, I would feel better if you admitted that he's an idiot. But she understands and she talks about her husband in a respectful way. Because it's the authority that God has given her, him over her, the same as the authority that David has given over her husband. So if, if we ever are confused about what this looks like, go look at Abigail in the books of Samuel. Now, gents, young men, why is it that the ladies are so reluctant to call us Lord? Well, part of it is their own issues, dating back to Genesis 3, where it says they want, to, they want to rule over their husbands. Women want to rule over men. And so they have their own thing going on. It's very difficult for them. And if, and if you're going to understand your wife, if you're going to understand your daughter, you've got to realize this isn't something they just wake up in the morning and say, well, I love Jesus and I've read the word of God. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to call my father and my husband Lord. It's very difficult for them. So then... Right? We have to pray for them. We have to realize that it's difficult. It's as difficult for them as you calling your, ma- your boss a master. But the other issue here is that you're, you don't act like a lord. You make it about as hard as it could, as hard as it could be to, to be called that. Because what does servant lordship look like? Chapter or Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25 and 27. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How did he use his authority in regards to the church? And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, husbands, is that, your, is that how you're living? You're living in such a way as to wash your wife of the word and to present her spotless without blemish? Or are there blemishes that she has that you don't really want to deal with because, man, that doesn't seem worth it? And then, like once I heard quoted from Proverbs, you know, it's a lot easier to live on the corner of a roof than with a woman who is obnoxious. But the only reason she's obnoxious is because 10 years ago when she started doing this, you didn't address it. And any problem that you let grow for 10 years, any sin that you let develop to this stage is going to be pretty problematic to get rid of. Are you keeping short accounts with your wives? Are you, are, are you using your strength? Are you using your resources to serve her? Are you making the difficult decisions for your household, right? The ones that she's not going to like, but that she needs you to make. Because again, husbands, I don't know if you've ever been there, right? 
wife and I deciding something. She's a lot smarter than I am. I know I'm writing this, but she seems pretty good. She seems pretty hot and bothered by it. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go ahead and say, okay, yeah, we're going to do what you want. And then it goes badly. And he's like, you, you know, and then the wife says what? What, do you, what does the wife think? Why didn't you just stand up? Why didn't you make a decision? You know this is what I wanted to do, and you didn't. It was a bad idea. And it ends up a little bit like the uh, Abraham and the, the slave woman and Sarah, right? She comes up with this idea to give him the slave woman. He does it even though it's a terrible idea, and then she's really mad at him. And you see this kind of thing playing out in, in households. But men are called to sanctify their wives. Men are called to lead them. Men are called to lay their lives down for them. Men are called, right? You don't just come home at, at, at the end of your work day and say, where's my sandwich? What have you done for me lately? Why are my clothes wrinkled? Right? We just, what do we do? Did you do those things? I called you that were so important. I interrupted your day. I didn't really ask what was going on in the house. But I said, do this and this and this, and I'm home now, so why aren't they done? Right, because we lead like our bosses. Have you ever had an unreasonable request by a boss? How do you feel about that? How does your wife feel about that? We have an authority problem. But in all of this, what is the authority problem that we have? What is it really fundamentally, what's at the heart of it? We don't like to be told what to do. We don't like to have to answer to anybody, right? We don't, in one sense, right, we want to tell people what to do. We don't want to be responsible for them. Like I was talking about this morning, like, right, Job, he gets up and he's praying for his kids and the condition of their heart before the sun rises. He cares about what's going on for them. He's interceding on their behalf. He's leading them and doing what he needs to do, self-sacrificing, calling out to God, thinking of them in a way that they need him to. Most of us use our authority to do what? We rule over our households, we rule over our jobs like Gentiles or like very effeminate men. This is, there are a whole lot of men who need to stop submitting and there are a whole lot of women who need to start. There's a whole lot of women who need to stop ruling their homes and a whole lot of men who need to start. Right? The reason you don't want to call him Lord is because then you would have to admit that he has some authority here. And maybe he hates the blinds, and then if I let him be Lord here, he will take them down. Right? But I mean, then you get into weird stuff there. Okay, you're beautifying it and you're doing a better job than he would do, but you're supposed to be beautifying it for who? This is, here, I'll throw, this is one I love. So my wife doesn't own any clothes that I didn't pick for her. Now, everybody gets really nervous when I say that. Everybody's like, what did he just say? <laughs> but this is how it actually works. We go shopping. She picks out five things. I look at them and I say, no, no, yes, 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 never. Right? So it's not like I go to the... Everyone imagines, and I say it so it sounds a little like that. Everyone imagines I'm going to the store and I'm like, you know, she's in the... Put this on. I don't care if you like it, you're wearing it. Right, but she understood, we understood something early on is that who, who, who is she dressing to impress? So at this point, I'll be honest, she doesn't even put on a pair of socks that I don't think look cute. I'll be, seriously, I was thinking this the other day. I was like, I don't think I've seen her put on an ugly thing in like three years. She just looks good all the time. And, and this is how homes are, right? Because we, we, this is the thing I go with with men, right? She has authority over the household. Get out of her business, 
<laughs> she'll cook the food that she wants to cook. She'll paint the walls the way, color she wants to paint them. But, but what we easily forget, though, is that there is an orientation in the home. And the orientation is towards dad, is towards husband. What does he like? What does he like to drink? What does he like to eat? Right? The kids need to get their homework done. Why? Because when dad gets home, they need to spend time with him. Are the kids all there at the door waiting for dad to get home? And when dad comes home, is that exciting? Is the orientation of the home towards the Lord? Right? Now, the, 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 the home is the woman's kingdom, but the orientation of that kingdom is the Lord. And this is something that's very, 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 very difficult. What we, what, what we have is, an, is, is a language problem. Okay, people who read too much theology come to the Bible with theology words, not Bible words. And then what they do is they force those theology words into the Bible and it creates all kinds of problems. Well, we do the same thing. We have people translating the Bible in such a way as we're taking out pronouns, we're taking out uh, the word slave, we're taking out important words, like baptism is one that they translate very badly, and so people are very confused about it. And what we, what we have are people who assume that the Bible that they receive in their hands from the bookstore is perfect. And this is a whole other level of how unengaged we are because we just assume that the PhDs that they had translated knew exactly what they were doing and there's nothing wrong with it. This is the word of God. There's no issues with it. So when I say, yeah, I'm into inerrancy, what I mean by that is not this. I don't mean this. Somewhere there's a Hebrew manuscript and a Greek manuscript that are perfect. (laughs) Absolutely perfect. I get this and I'm like, why are they calling... Why are they being confusing about hims and hers? Because the, the, the fight that we're in at this stage in, in Christian culture is this, over the dictionary. We're fighting over the dictionary. What is a boy? What is a girl? What is marriage? What is creation? What is prayer? What is education? What is a lord? What is a master? And what we have is an authority problem. Because the word of God is very clear, and but we don't want to talk, we don't want to stand up and say, listen, you guys are talking about slavery in a way that doesn't make any sense biblically. You're talking about submission in a way that doesn't make any sense biblically. You're talking about gender in a way that doesn't make any sense biblically. You're talking about marriage in a, in a way that doesn't make any sense. And we have the authority to do it. But we're not good at exercising authority, and so when it comes to the public square, we don't know what we're doing. But if we were exercising biblical authority in our homes and we were using the words that God gave us and we were using the ideas and we were conforming ourselves to the word of God in our own homes and in our church and in our work, then what we would do is that it, gets, it grows and grows and grows and expands and expands and expands. But at, at the heart and soul of this is this. Servant lordship is this. Jesus says in chapter 10, verse 45, for even the Son of Man came to be served, or came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus Christ did not come here so that we could serve him. He came here so that he could serve us. He came here to take care of a problem that we could not take care of ourselves. He came here to do the very thing for us that we needed that we don't want. 
We don't want to give up the sins. We don't want to give up the pet sins. We don't want to give up ourselves. And yet he came and died so that we could. Because that's what we need to do in order to get back to the place that we really belong, which is in the garden with the Father. He was the richest creature, richest being that you could possibly imagine. And he spent all of it on you. He spent all of it on Linwood. He spent all of it on Washington. He spent all of it on the United States, on the Western Hemisphere, for the Pacific Ocean and the Atlantic Ocean. And I go out, you get the point. Nobody wanted him to do what he was about to do. Did that stop him? Everybody is offended by the things that he is saying. Did that stop him? Did the people who are following him feel like subjugated slaves? No. Right? It's confusing that he calls them slaves because the slaves in the household of God are very different than slaves right, on a plantation in antebellum south. We don't know what good godly slavery looks like. We're unwilling to do it. We don't want that kind of, right? We don't want, we don't love the household of God so badly because this is what they would have in the Old Testament. Some masters were so great, the slaves didn't want to leave them. And so they would take them to the door, and they would take a, um, a piece of metal, and they'd shove it through their ear and into the, into the door. And that man and his whole household would be part of the family then. They would realize, you know, it's better to be a slave in this house than be a free man. And what they would, Because what they came to find out is slavery in this house is the freest thing that I have ever known. The most glorious thing I've ever known. The work that is better than any work I could have possibly imagined. And so Jesus comes and he would rather be a slave, right? The the, the prodigal son, what is that story about? Jesus would rather, he would rather go back to his father's house and be a slave. He would rather be a slave in that house. He gives up everything that he has to come and to be a slave. And all he calls us to is to do likewise. But what it requires is dying. What it requires is us putting ourselves away. What it requires is us to conform, not to our own ideas, not to the culture, to principalities and powers of the air, but to submit ourselves and conform to him. Do you want, do you, (laughs) your household, your workplace, this church, this community, what does it need? Does it need people who will turn their face like flint to the task that God has given them and wholly obey and why can we do it? Because Christ did it for us. Does, this, does your family, does this church, does this community need servants? Is there work to be done? Are there people who are in need? People who are broken? People who are needy? Right? You, the Christian life isn't you come here once a week and you know somehow God prospers you and blesses you simply because you show up, simply because you have Bibles. What he's calling you to do is to come here and to reshape and and refocus your entire life. To set your face like flint towards the throne of God. And to serve your children, your spouse, everyone that you know, so that they too would understand what it's like to set their face like flint towards the throne of God. So let us pray that we, we, we repent of this authority problem that we have, that we learn to honor and respect the God-given authorities that we have so, and, and learn to exercise the authority that we have the way Christ did it, which is the, in service and love and selflessness.
That's what your wife needs. That's what your husband needs. That's what your children need. That's what your communities need. And amen. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you, as we look at these difficult things, as we deal with our own misconceptions, our own bad vocabulary, we pray, Lord God, that you would teach us to speak like you and think like you, that he would teach us to serve like your son, to exercise authority like your son, not for himself, but for others. Lord God, every, every cup of water that we give a thirsty person, every time we clothe a naked person, every person in prison that we visit, every, everything that we do in service and in love to others is done under the Lord. May we seek more and more opportunities to, to see you at work, to see your son in the people around us and in the situations around us, and, and teach us not to fear man, not to fear culture, but, Lord God, to speak the word of God, to proclaim it and to live it in such a way, Lord, that we honor you even unto death, even if it costs us our lives. Let us serve and let us lead, Lord, like your son, Jesus. Amen.